This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Eyes to the Left. Hello and welcome to Eyes to the Left, the Mirror's political podcast. My name is Jason Beatty, and today I'm joined by Tom Watson, the Labour Deputy Leader and Shadow Culture Secretary, and we're recording this in Tom's office in the Houses of Parliament. And the reason um, Tom has kindly agreed to join me is we're going to be discussing AI, automation, robotics, and this is a huge issue, which is going to affect millions of people's lives. It's going to affect how you work, if you have a job, the conditions of your work. It's going to affect how you're screened for work, insurance policies. It's, it's going to transform our lives over the next 10 to 50 years. And Tom um, was one of the first people to recognize this challenge. He set up a Future for Work Commission specifically to look at uh, the problems faced and by AI and automation. That reported back in December. And what I really want to do, talk to you about, Tom, is, is what is the big challenges from both robotics and AI? I mean, they kind of overlap a little bit, don't they? Um, so start, start off, why did you set up the commission? Okay, well, look, thanks for interviewing me about this, Jason, because I happen to think it's the biggest issue facing the labour market in the UK in my lifetime. Uh, and I came at this because I represent the manufacturing heartlands in the, in the very heart of the black country in West Bromwich. Uh, and I started to read early reports. There was a Bank of America report that came out with this very dystopian views that 50% of global manufacturing jobs currently done by humans would be replaced by robots over the next 20 to 25 years. Now, when you, man when you represent a manufacturing seat like West Bromwich, that really, you know, gets your attention. And what I realized was government wasn't doing anything to map out what the contours of this new revolution were. Uh, and the more I read into it, there's more and more research. The Bank of England say that 15 million jobs uh, could go as a result of automation, the OECD with sort of similar kind of figures. And I thought, well, if the government aren't doing it, doing it the opposition should do it. And I brought together economists and sociologists and te technologists to just try and map out not just what the threat was, but to try and find out what the potential for government to do to sort of alleviate some of these big changes. And actually what we came up with was a slightly more optimistic picture of what could be achieved were government to take this issue seriously. And we're absolutely convinced that uh, the labour market will be transformed. Some jobs will go and there are particular sectors that are particularly vulnerable to big, big changes. Places like, you know, sectors like retailing, warehousing, logistics, transport, uh, all lend themselves to automation. And perhaps surprisingly for people also, sectors of the economy that have not been traditionally changed by technology, uh, highly skilled uh, jobs that require complex cognitive thinking. So 
you know, paralegals or, uh, or you know, consultants in hospitals. So, for example, for example, that convincing, which you usually go to a solicitor for, that could be done by a computer program with algorithms more, more effectively and cheaper. Pretty much. Even a study I read out there on a personal interest here that Columbia University in the United States said they've got a program which can do journalism. I mean, obviously, I'm going to contest that. But this is just an example. It's not just kind of, you know, blue-collar jobs. It's white-collar ones as well. Uh, yes. In fact, in journalism, uh, the, the Press Association uh, it started to test whether they could do automated sports reporting. Uh, so, you know, human journalism is already under threat from some of these sort of automated systems. Although, obviously, no computer will be able to write as well as your fabulous columns, Jason. The flattery works brilliantly. Which I read with great interest. <laughs> uh, uh, but, um, you know, so we looked at it and and I was really grateful for the commission, for the work they did. Uh, and the first thing they concluded was um, there's a lot more work to do. There's a lot more detail to fill out. Uh, in fact, today, as we speak, uh, what this led to was a, was a sense that uh, what was supposed to be a one-off project to look at, uh, to produce a report, to look at the issues, needed its own institution. And today, the, uh, the future of work... Uh, um, institution has, has launched with academics from across the different uh, expertises uh, to carry on the work they did. Um, but what we realised was government needed to be prepared. Uh, and, that, and that's where I think the big challenge is for a government of whatever political persuasion. But one of the things you, you mentioned in your report is actually the people who are going to be hardest hit are those who were already hit by the industrial downturn and the collapse of heavy industry under Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. And you're saying they're the ones whose jobs are probably most at risk. Is that, is that right? Yes, the problem we find is, of course, what, what, what's actually happened over the last 30 years is, uh, again, if you take West Bromwich as an example, these were highly skilled jobs, uh, manu- you know, manufacturing heartlands where workers did things with great skill using their hands. Uh, a lot of these jobs, when when Margaret Thatcher opened the markets and globalised the economy, and they went to cheaper economies around the globe, and of course, government future government intervention then meant that there was a sort of investment program that brought the new industries to uh, those areas. But of course, these are industries that are vulnerable to change. So, call centres, warehouses, logistics depots, uh, uh, retail distribution, uh, big retail parks. Uh, and they're all in the Midlands and the North, or over-index yeah. in the Midlands and the North. So it could be that there's a double whammy to these and, traditional labour heartlands. And this is already happening. I, I happened to catch the BBC series of Greg Wallace called Inside the Factory, and he went to this Ribena factory um, just outside Bristol, and I counted five staff, yeah. and they were producing tens of thousands of bottles of Ribena a day. It was entirely automated. They had one person who kind of checked computers to see if the bottles went through the kind of machine correctly. And then the other staff were people loading the pallets onto a lorry. And that job, the lorry, is going to go anyway if we get automated vehicles, isn't it? So you say this is a big challenge. It's already happening in front of our eyes. What's the answer? What do we do? How scared should we be? Well, firstly, the one thing we need to know is that you can't stop AI. You can't stop technology. Our history shows that. And so it lends itself to the government being global leaders in the development of AI. In fact, rather, you could see this as good news. Four of the five biggest acquisitions of artificial intelligence companies have been British companies. 
which shows that we have the technologists and the right sort of research base to make sure we understand AI. Uh, but in order to do that, we need a workforce that also understands the use of AI. So one of the recommendations was in secondary schools, our kids need to be taught about the, not just the sort of technical aspects of AI, but also the ethics that sit behind it because they need to be prepared for this new world of work. Um, secondly, we recognize that the impact of AI in the jobs market is very likely to mean that those with high-skilled jobs that can't be automated will have far more power, even more than they do now, than those people in low-skilled work, and there'll be greater competition for those low-skilled jobs. And right now, those people with low-skilled jobs have very little power in the economy, and we're already seeing the impact in the gig economy where workers are either paid very little uh, money for their for their labor and have few rights but also we found that uh, workers have almost been transformed into robots themselves into certain areas so if you work in a warehouse for amazon you're going to have monitoring devices i'm going to come on to that later because that, that's a really interesting aspect yeah. of the whole ai debate that's uh, slightly different from automation but. yeah uh so uh, yeah so one thing we've got to do is make sure that you know we're ready for this big change and that that requires change to our curriculum at all levels. But it also means that the jobs that survive or come through this are the jobs that require, dare I call it, emotional intelligence, uh, you know, collaborative working, project work, teamwork. And so that the way we teach our kids, uh, I mean, it's very, we're very old now, Jason, so we, you know, we don't remember this, <laughs> but, you know, my kids, you know, you think they get access to most of the knowledge in the world at their fingertips on a device they can hold in their hand. We never had that. We needed to memorize a lot of stuff. Uh, well, actually, when you've got access to knowledge, how, how you sift through information, how you prioritize what information is valid and what isn't, how you can build teams that can uh, sort of problem solve together is, is perhaps more important in the curriculum. And I think that lends itself to a revolution in education that hasn't yet sort of uh, been thought about. And a lot greater emphasis on creativity, the arts, the, the jobs which AI cannot replace. Is yeah, well, ironically, of course, well, well, you know, some of the greatest people using the tech, uh, you know, they're creative endeavours. I mean, if you're writing code for video games, it is in itself a creative process. And we say that actually creativity in its broadest form is, should be absolutely central to a child's education. And the thing that worries us is, you know, in another bit of the turf for my work, we've lost 500 music teachers at schools. Uh, there's no more drama courses. You know, pe kids aren't being taught art for all the creative arts or, create, you know, less emphasis on creative writing in schools, unless they go to private schools, of course, and it's still part of their curriculum. And, and, and the sort of austerity years have meant that the sort of creative teaching in itself has been reduced in the state sector. And these are precisely the skills our kids have got to develop to deal with the new world of collaborative working. Now, a couple of the arguments that have been thrown up as part of the kind of chaff of this debate are, are one, whether we should have a, a robot tax, which would kind of fund possibly something like a universal basic income. Do, are you... Do you see that as a kind of a very negative way to go down, down, or is that, a, or do you see kind of the benefits to that? I mean, are we going to have people because their jobs have been placed by machines are, are going to be unable to find work, and therefore we have to find a way of supporting them? Well, we certainly think that um, there is a potential for 
capital to be held in fewer and fewer hands. So the owners of the robots being the only winners in the economy. Uh, if you just allow this technological change to go down a sort of linear path without intervention, that's where it's going to end up. So it does require government intervention. What we actually found was investment in, um, in robots and automated systems in the UK is actually pretty low compared to our OECD competitors. And, you know, it depends where you're looking at this, but it seems to me that, you know, that gives, our, gives other countries a competitive edge in productivity over the UK that we can't afford to let happen. So we, we actually came out to say we need to invest, we need to find vehicles to, in, to encourage businesses to invest more in productivity uh, whilst the state makes sure that uh, our future workers are trained to take the jobs that will be created by this new revolution. So it could be that sort of taxation on what, what the, the, the economy is called capital goods, uh, which is where robots would sit, could change. But that would be to invest, incentivize investment rather than to, uh, you know, take, take the productive work of those uh, of, that the robots produce. But it does mean that we need fair taxation. You can't just have people who have access to wealth and capital to be the winners in this economy. The idea that, uh, you know, there's this talk of the hourglass economy, where at the top you've got an increasing number of super wealthy people. You know, you look at London now, there's more billionaires than ever before that live in London. But a hollowing out in the middle of the, the so-called, so, you know, traditional skilled middle-class jobs that go as a result of automation. But then a widening pool uh, at the base of the labour market, of low-skilled, insecure work, of people that can be sort of hired and fired at will. That's not the kind of civilised economy we want to live in. But that's where this will go if government doesn't decide to change the course of uh, the trajectory. And this, so, so the key to unlocking this problem is getting much better skills and giving people much better skills. It, it, it absolutely is. Uh, and... You know, from from you know from data ethics and c complex technical skills at secondary level to the research priorities in in tertiary education and in in the higher education sector, uh, through the way that government partners up with businesses and emerging businesses to the rights we give to workers, we say you know you should treat a worker as a worker. You know, if you're a gig economy worker, you should have the same kind of rights as. Uh, as people who work in more traditional uh, jobs as well. You can't just sort of marginalise uh, those, those workers in the gig economy. And that requires political leadership. Uh, and, um, you, you know, if you don't have that, then you just have exploitation. Okay. Now, the other side of AI is this kind of slightly Orwellian picture, which is already happening. You mentioned it earlier, but Amazon has patented a wristband, so it monitors the productivity of workers in its warehouses. You've got AI being used to screen people for insurance claims, so they won't take you on if they think the algorithms say no. You've got AI being used to hire and fire people. Now, sometimes that's positive because you've got it's blind in terms of you know people are more like to hire people like them, but AI would say, no, actually, that person's the best person for the job. But it's going to also be negative because you've got AI being used to say, you're not working hard enough. And then you've got cases I've, I've read about of, of you've now got call centre workers who are having their conversations monitored by AI. And AI is chipping in and saying, no, you're not selling that properly. Or no, you're sounding too pessimistic. Or no, you're not being productive enough. So this idea of kind of 
as I say, kind of a kind of 1984 mass surveillance. Um, how worried are you about it? And we well, when we looked at this, uh, we we knew it was an issue, but we were appalled by some of the experiences we saw. So uh, you know, you you spend too much time on a toilet break, and a little button on a screen in a in a warehouse manager's uh, uh, office starts to flash. Uh, and you know what you're taking away from workers in in that kind of draconian environment is independent thought is utility uh, and you're actually changing the nature of work it's it, it, it's no longer a rewarding experience it's it is a, essentially modern day slavery it's like a galley slave isn't it yeah. you're whipped if you're not working hard enough but you're whipped by a machine yeah uh no we that's not to say that there are not some of these wearable measurable devices did not have some advantages. So when you work in an environment that requires uh, attention to health and safety, it can monitor whether people are, you know, uh, doing the right processes in order to keep everyone safe. So we, we weren't, we didn't come out against measurable devices uh, per se, but it certainly means that uh, I think the world of work will have to uh, legislate to, to, to sort of define what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. Um, and you know, I, I think I would find it very difficult to hold down some of the jobs, uh, with the devices that people wear now. If I was working in an Amazon warehouse where you've got a three strikes and you're out policy, you know, you go to the toilet for too long on three occasions, you lose your job. I don't think that's the kind of country that most people want us to live in, uh, and would be appalled that. These are the kind of conditions that uh, British workers are, are, are living under now. And it's only going to get worse if we don't change the way the labour market operates. And one of the things you've called for is for the Equalities Act to be updated so you don't get discrimination by algorithm. Can you just explain what you mean by that? Yeah, this is a sort of a, it's an emerging idea that, um, you, you know, do you really want a, a robot or an automated system to judge you? Uh, what happens if the algorithm the algorithm is wrong? Right, there's a lot of judgment in there, uh, and uh, we we actually moved amendments to um, the recent data protection bill. Uh, the government rejected them, but it was the first time that Parliament had really talked about this idea that uh, you know the course of your life can change because of an algorithm that's made a judgment about you. It's either given you a job or not a job, or allowed you to do X or Y. Uh, and we think that this falls right into the realm of ethics and we need to understand it more. Uh, it's the same with big data. You know, some of the, how you deal with big data essentially falls down to ethics and notions of privacy uh, that we're not going to sort of iron out overnight because we, we as a society need to debate this. Uh, but uh, there are certainly some uh, unethical behaviours out there uh, that you know, government needs to take an interest in. One of the classic ones was recently we realised that a big data was being used to buy an offshore gambling company to specifically target people that they had algorithmically decided were problem gamblers and they're therefore vulnerable to their products. Well, we don't want commerce to go in that direction. And uh, so again, there needs to be an apparatus put in place that can make a judgment about whether algorithmic decision-making in a particular sector is good for society or bad. And that's where we need to sort of really have that discussion in the years ahead. Do people realise how much 
information and data they give away on a kind of daily basis through whether it's through social media or apps? I don't think they do yet. I mean, certainly as a country, you know, I think we'll be discussing privacy and notions of privacy uh, for the duration of the rest of my life, political life, because big data, social media, you know, look at Zuckerberg flying all over the the world on his apology tour uh, for giving all that data away to the bad people. Um, You know, notions of privacy are in a state of flux. Uh, and we've got a next generation of workers living their lives, uh, you know, in public with a digital imprint uh, left uh, to, to the world for the rest of their lives. Uh, and some of them are losing jobs for dumb things they've said on Facebook as teenagers. Uh, now, it, it, you know, as a society, we're going to have to deal with that because we believe in the power of redemption. And we see our young folk making the mistakes that we made. And then they grow up to be mature adults. And we're going to have to deal with that. And if data analysts are going to make sure that their lives are punished for things they did in their teens because of big data and algorithmic uh, decision-making, then government's got to step yeah, in. Because when we were growing up, we said stupid things down the pub with our mates. Now yeah. people are growing up and saying stupid things on Twitter or on Facebook yeah. or on Instagram or yeah. on Snapchat. and yeah, and, uh, I, you know, I shouldn't, you know, I, obviously politicians are the ones that say the dumbest things all the time on social media. But if a 14-year-old kid says something yeah. at 14 on Facebook and then 10 years later loses out a job because of something they, silly they did and, you know, it's, uh, it's always remembered, then I think we should give them a helping hand in the world of labour to give them a few rights to put that right. Yeah. And one of the things I was, I was interested in and I've been thinking about a lot is who owns data because this information can be extraordinarily valuable. For yeah. example, if we have collected great data sets, it could help with health, for example, yeah. or it could help political parties decide policy, or it could help companies benefit in, in good ways rather than negative ways. Yeah. But this information is held by very few and it's usually a few, two or three big, big tech firms. Yeah. Now, it struck me, and do correct me if you think this parallel's wrong, but one of the best things Tony Blair and Bill Clinton did was they made the Human Genome Project public. So they said all scientists can have access to this and they will benefit from future generations. And I was just wondering if we should be doing a similar thing with data and saying, look, this information should be used for the public good. It should be there for academics. It should be there for research. It should be there for medical science. Is that possible? And is that the right way forward? It is possible, but it's very hard to apply general rules to big data because each data set has a specific set of ethics that sit behind it. Uh, and, you know, and also I have to say, you know, the, the global infrastructure of data sharing is now, you know, so complex, it's hard to unravel some of that. Now, 10 years ago, when I was the digital minister, uh, back in 2008, uh, I tried to sort of look at whether you could have a notion that a citizen would own their own data uh, and that actually you could put a set of public services around that that required government to uh, say to the citizenry when it re- was required to use their data in order to craft public services. Uh, but even back in 2008, the civil service pushed back and essentially said, 
there are so many data transactions across the public realm, it would be almost impossible to map out where data sharing takes place on a daily basis. But I certainly think you can enhance the rights of the citizen in this uh, in these transactions that go on in their name. We've just passed a new bill that enacts uh, a, a European directive that tries to give a little bit more power back to uh, the citizenry when it comes to their data being shared. Although, of course, the monopoly data companies and I, you know, the problem with Facebook is not that it's a data company; it's that it's got a it's got a, a monopolistic. Uh, tendency. Uh, they've just moved their uh, data to an American jurisdiction outside the European Union to evade the capture of the general data uh, stuff that's come out of the EU, these new rights that we give to citizens. And we've got to be vigilant about that. But on the flip side of that, I mean, if you look at um, the possibility that anonymized health data can do at scale, you know, it could improve the research times in the pharmaceutical sector for which new pharmaceuticals can be brought to market to make people well again. It can significantly enhance chronic conditions shared by people with uh, particular illnesses and diseases. It can do diagnosis better than some of the very the most skilled consultants in the land. Uh, you've only got to look at what DeepMind is doing with sort of retina scans to know the potential for big data to make us a healthier nation to mean that we live longer. Uh, but, you know, I think the deal there is if the state's going to do that and use anonymized data, we've sure got to be, uh, we've got to be absolutely certain that we keep that data anonymized and we keep people's private information secure. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm not sure whether government is, you know, vigilant enough in order to give that security because you do need a buy-in from the public when we sort of start going down this journey and we're not too far away from that, I think. And why is it that most of these firms are, are, are American? Why isn't the British Apple? Why isn't the British Google? Where have we gone wrong? Well, we are, you know, we have been very good at startups, at tech startups. I mean, I, I think I just said, you know, four of the five of the biggest AI acquisitions were were UK companies. DeepMind was a UK company. Uh, but the sort I have of, to declare an interest here. My cousin works for DeepMind. Well, no, they're a very, I mean, a very interesting company. But of course, what we didn't manage to do was scale the company and bring the capital in so that they could grow as a UK company. Uh, now, fortunately, uh, the leadership of the deep mind company in itself, you know, are British and want to stay in Britain and, you know, research excellence re retain is retained in Britain. Uh, but there's nothing to stop them, you know, moving around the, uh, moving around the planet, particularly if the deals on uh, the Brexit negotiations go the wrong way. Uh, now that's not unique to us. I, when, when I was looking at this, I also uh, went to Israel that um, is considered one of the, best environments for tech startups on the planet. And they've done some amazing uh, partnership work in between startup tech companies and government to sort of have a seed corn in many, many different sectors. But they find that when it came to scaling the companies, what was happening was people were allowing that partnership to flourish. And then big capital investors from predominantly the United States were coming up and cherry picking those that were growing the fastest with the greatest reach. So, uh, and, you know, it depends on where you stand, but my view is we should be 
looking at ways that we can encourage scaling up from the from startups that have sort of established themselves but want to retain remain in the UK and that's about state partnership and working with capital investors as well and making sure the environment is benign for them so overall are you a pessimist or an optimist about where it's going to go uh, um, <clears throat> in life I'm generally an optimist and I think you have to be an optimist. You can't sort of try and hold back the tide of technological change. Um, we can't keep making horseshoes in the age of a motor car. <laughs> no, and I think the Luddites taught us that uh, mm-hmm. lesson through, you know, hundreds of years ago. Um, and actually, from my perspective, that you know, from as a Labour Party member that believes in the power of the state to change lives, I think it this change lends itself to our view of the world. You know, we're very good at creating tripartite institutions where government, workers and employers can work together. The Low Pay Commission was a classic one from the Blair era. Uh, And if you can have that tripartite approach to the economy, to plan for the changes ahead, to invest in skills quickly, uh, to deal with the worst excesses of the market when we create these new markets through AI, then I think Britain can lead the world in this technological revolution. But it requires government to be at the heart of it. And right now, government doesn't even know what's coming down the tracks, let alone have any idea what the remedies are. And, and the, this is the danger. This is when you talk about losing a tsunami of jobs. That If we allow it to be unregulated, if the state doesn't intervene and it doesn't protect people at risk, then it could be catastrophic. Yes, the impact of... Uh, I mean, if we, if we just sit back and carry on down the same road that this is heading, then there could be a huge number of unemployed people in this country, bigger than the 1980s, you know, near to the 1930s perhaps. Um, and yet we know that AI will create new jobs. I mean, I look at, I mean, the thing I've got a personal interest in, uh, it's a potential revolution in medical diagnostics uh, that can, you know, where we can literally monitor our own uh, biomarkers to make sure that we're, well all of the time rather than needing an appointment with a GP every six months uh, and, uh, and now we can map that out we can create whole new professions we can give skills to people we can give them rewarding working experiences uh, but it requires government to be in there at the planning process working working and planning for the future uh, so you know the the potential for doing nothing is you know, could impact on millions of people's working lives in this country in a scale I've never known in my lifetime. But if we get it right, we can inha- we can grow our economy, create new fulfilling jobs, and you know, give the next generation a proper start in working life. Tom, that was fascinating. Thank you so much for spending time uh, talking about this issue, which, as you say, is going to transform what's the rest of our lives and definitely our children's lives. Um, you can uh, go to our, our website, which is mirror.co.uk forward slash eyes, A-Y-E-S, or you can find us on iTunes if you wish to register and, and leave a rating. Um, as I said, my name is Jason Beatty. You can follow me on Twitter as at jbtmirror. Tom is on Twitter as at Tom underscore Watson. Excellent. And we'll be back soon. Thank you for listening. <laughs>